Excellent. Right. Actually, my uh, talk follows on very well from Lisa's. Honestly, we didn't didn't get in cahoots about this to start with, but it but it does because I'm looking at uh, narrative as a mechanism for creating a sense of space, and I would like to look at um, three Welsh three particular Welsh sites. Uh, Mudvai and its surroundings, Strata Florida and Nanteas, and the area which encompasses Llangorth Cranach. Now, these are all sites where legend has been important. Uh, let me do something a little more interesting than that. This is the this is the Mudvai site, um, and this is the Mudvai Community Centre. It's one of the famous sites in Wales <clears throat> because of the links to the Fairy Bride. The fairy bride who comes out of Llinlanvach um, returns eventually because her husband violates a taboo, but returns again to give her sons the information which becomes the uh, is called the Mithagan Mithvai, the material which makes them sort of great physicians. Now there are a lot of interesting things that are are happening happening here. One of them is the the way in which the Mithagan material is viewed. Um, it's it's seen as uh, it, it's an example of how to how to express this sort of nicely, uh, really of romantic creation. The material was edited in the 19th century for the first time and translated into English, and the people involved in it were very involved in presenting Wales as a romantic place. Um, John Pugh was a doctor, but a doctor who was interested in what we would now probably consider alternative medicine. Um, Ab Ithel, who edited this, was very interested in Welsh Druidry and creating Welsh Druidry. And the third and really, really dangerous one involved in this, although he's not credited uh, in the book, is Yolo Morganog, who supposedly copied a work of medicine uh, by someone we can't really identify. And it's really full of sort of Druid names for plants and things. So what one has is a very romantic view of the Welsh past, immediately you start. The other thing about this, which impinges, I think, a great deal on the way the community has approached this, is that it's actually a re-oralized folktale. In other words, you can't really see the continuity. You can see kind of where it drops off and where it comes back again. When John Rees uh, visited the area looking for these fairy bride stories, and the fairy bride story is, is actually quite a well-known one in Wales. There are about two dozen examples, all associated with lakes or bodies of water. But when Rees went to collect this, he didn't find anything in Mithai, yet now it's become very, very popular. It's the most uh, popular anthologized Welsh folktale, certainly that I've come across. I haven't done a numbers count, uh, but I'm quite sure this one would, would, would be the, the most important one, even above the Arthurian stuff. Um, I suspect the reoralization came after the First World War. And the reason why I suspect this is that the tale was included in a book of, of material given to Welsh speaking soldiers to kind of remind them of their Welshness. Uh, 
So you get this notion that this particular tale and this particular body of material is somehow essentially Welsh. I've never been able to get anyone, number of times I've asked, both English speakers and Welsh speakers to tell me why exactly it's essentially Welsh. Mostly they talk about our well, the antiquity, the idea that the Welsh were Celts and very close to the soil, all of which are, you know, sort of generic romantic notions. At the moment, the Muthai Community Centre, and this is a picture of it, um, was dedicated in, I think, uh, 2011 by Prince Charles. So there's a, a royal link there. And of course, Prince Charles is very interested in alternative medicine. Um, it is used extensively. There is a shop which sells uh, craft goods, very high class craft goods. There is a bookshop. The things that are sold in the bookshop, uh, some of them are much more towards the romantic uh, notion of herbalism. Uh, but it also has every year a conference in which academics are invited. Uh, some of the lectures, I think, again, uh, go more towards the healing wells, but they have published a book with a collection of academic essays. So there's a consciousness of an academic world as well as a popular world. <clears throat> in addition to the Mothervai story, in the church is, and I have a picture of it here, uh, the tombstone for the last um, physician of Mothervai, the last one. Now, there are references to Mothergan Mothervai uh, in, early, in earlier, earlier sources, not very, very early sources. Um, and there's a suggestion that they have been linked to um, the court physician of the Lord Rees. So again, you have it worked into Welsh history, but they're not they're only ever called doctors, whereas what you have operating in Mathevai much more recently is really what Lisa was talking about, is the Dinian Hospice tradition, the conjurer tradition. And the actual documents, which are recorded in the Red Book of Hergest, um, are, are not particularly Welsh. They belong to the kind of medical documents you find in the Middle Ages. The sorts of things which as medicine became professionalized and therefore more expensive, turns into the kind of popular medicine which was practiced by the Dinian Hospice. So you have this very interesting bifurcation that here is this collection of documents which are not anciently Welsh, but very medieval, giving way towards modern uh, professional medicine and yet being retained and given this sort of new identity as ancient Welsh medicine, ancient Welsh herbalism. And of course, Mavai is very much connected to that. It's a small town, obviously no industry, and it's remote from other, other places. So you can see why this particular thing is very important. Uh, this is Lina van Vach, and there's one of the many illustrations of the, the story of Lina van Vach. It's in the center of an important sort of walking area. So you get a lot of hill walkers, you get a lot of climbers uh, climbing the mound and using Madhvai really as a, a center from which to set out or come, or come back. So again, there is this, this interesting problem that the, the narrative provides a context, it provides depth, it provides interest, it's an exciting and fascinating narrative. But it's a narrative which really comes in in the in, 
in the Romantic period, as I say, and I can't stress this often enough, it's a reoralized narrative rather than a narrative of continuity. And the reason I'm going on and on about this is because the last site I deal with has a much more continuous narrative. So the traditions are there. Um, the Madhagan were collected to the Lord Rees, an important uh, king, an important ruler in Wales. Uh, the community centre has now a modern royal heritage. They have commissioned a stained glass window, also dedicated uh, by Prince Charles, called the Legend of Linnevan Vach and Healing Waters. Um, lots of activities occur there, they now, of course, in abeyance. Uh, but one can understand, given where they are and given the uh, sort of reputation of the stories of the Mothergun, why there is this emphasis on the natural. Um, the story has been in an opera, it's been in a ballet, it's been a children's sort of thing. There is a, a, a novel written on it by Hilda Vaughan. And this is one of the posters, which again goes back to this notion of antiquity, a notion which it is, it, it is largely constructed, it has to be said. So an interesting place, um, a place which is sort of up and running as a going concern, uh, will undoubtedly be up and running once COVID stops again, um, the, the lectures will start again, people will come back and indeed the site sort of says, yes, finally we are about to open and I hope it stays open. But one which kind of draws on romanticism as well as history. The second site I want to look at is Nanteas in Strata, Florida. Um, and particularly the Nanteas Cup. I've done a lot of collecting here over uh, a number of years. And only recently, the Kupan Nanteas has been given to the National Library, where it is now on display. It starts off in uh, just after the Reformation, when the Stadling family bought the site of, uh, of uh, Strata Florida Abbey and built a house there, a house which is still there, Menachlag, Hain Menachlag. Um, it became a farmhouse. Originally, it was the house that the family lived in. When the family married the Powells, they moved to the much posher um, mansion of Nanteas, which I think is the next one. There it is. That's what they moved to. And this is Menachlog Var, um, Orhen Menachlog, the, the building that was there, built largely out of uh, stone from the abbey. At some point in the 19th century, uh, a maize bowl, a broken maize bowl, was found and brought back to the house. And it is this maize bowl which has become known as the Coupon Nanteas, from which people would drink, particularly favored by women who had, um, had children and were suffering some kind of postpartum fever. People would drink from this, and it was a curative cup. And it stayed there. There are records of it, of coming, of, of things coming back and marking cured. Uh, and it, it's, it's there. At the beginning of the 20th century, Mrs. Margaret Powell linked it to the Holy Grail. She was very interested in this kind of, of spirituality. There were lots of Holy Grail candidates at the beginning of the 19th century. And this was her particular one. For the first part of the 20th century, it remained very local. You would have stories in newspapers, mostly by people who visited during the summer and were not Welsh. They were visitors to Aberystwyth. Um, the people I've spoken to, many of them, are very affectionate towards this object. 
Very, very few of the locals think it's the grail. They all know perfectly well that it is associated with this house. But there is a sense that there is a, a kind of unity here, which encompass the, the old estates of Trascoid, Gogerta, and Nanteas, who pretty well cover Cardiganshire and, and modern and some of Carmarthenshire as well. And it's a very affectionately nostalgic view, but it's also a very ironic view, very aware that uh, these gentry folk were very improvident with money, didn't necessarily run the estates particularly well. Uh, and from the point of view of the kind of yeoman, guerin, and city dwellers, um, nice to think about, but also nice to have passed. Now, the reason I stress this is because in the second half of the 20th century, uh, or the, the, the later 20th century, the holy grail aspect of this object becomes very, very popular, and it's largely due to the internet. And there is when you get people sort of linking it to the Templars and various, various things. Um, and in the 21st century now, let me move on slightly, there is a reinterpretation of the whole of the Strata Florida area. Let me see if I have a picture which, which helps. Um, I will come back to that. Um, that's the Strata, Strata Florida rooms. Interpreting it as a sacred landscape. Now this too has gone into abeyance because of COVID, but there's a sense that somehow Strata Florida can be linked to all of the monuments in the area, all of the monuments that Professor Hutton was talking about, all of the early monuments. And in many ways, it kind of pivots, not so much here on the Grail as on this structure, which is a stone line structure in the middle of the ruin. And the question really is here, is this an ancient Druid well, or is it part of the drainage system brought in by the Cistercians to make this area more suitable for farming and sheep farming and the things that the Cistercians did well? And of course, depending on which side of this, this question, it's not really an argument you fall, depends really on whether you see Strata Florida as a more sacred area or simply as part of a very layered historical area in Wales. Let me go back for a minute. Exploiting Strata Florida as a tourist site is nothing new. Stephen Williams, who is rightly called the father of Cistercian archaeology in Wales, also owned shares in the Manchester and Milford Railway Company. And he organized tours of the area. Uh, Kersus Station, which is now obsolete, was renamed Strata Florida. People came, and this is one of the advertising things. And it's absolutely wonderful. It comes from the collection of the special collections in Cardiff. And it starts off, and how can one resist something that begins, puff, puff, mar tren in starto, and talks about a journey to uh, Strata Florida. Although the cup was not called the grail at the time. It was seen as a relic and there are all these wonderful sort of rather wild um, and sort of speculative stories about why the monks bought this cup and how they encouraged people and how the surrounding roads led to Strata Florida. I mean, it really, really is a very exciting story. It's a highly speculative one. And the speculation has continued, I think, very much into this notion of turning the Nanteas cup into the grail. It's an interesting belief structure, 
but one has to sort of say that it is made of witch elm, it is the shape of the maize bowl, and no matter how coy one can be about not wanting to test it because pilgrims have eaten it and all sorts of things, it really, really does not qualify well as a possible grail. But of course, that doesn't stop the stories. This is the bowl in which it was kept by the um, last of the Powells. They weren't actually Powells, but they inherited uh, Nanteus and left it. And it was this family or the last of this family who gave it to the National Library. Uh, Nanteus is now a posh country hotel. And this is the memorial in the garden, which as you can see, references Glastonbury, that's St. Michael's at Glastonbury. So one has this wonderful story a tourist exploitation of which goes back to the 19th century. Beliefs, various beliefs of which also go back to the 19th century. And it provides two things. One, a network for the people who live in and around Cardiganshire and the, uh, the Aberystwyth area. And as I say, I've had no problem with getting people to talk to me. In fact, I can remember walking up to the library and sort of people sort of stopping me and say, I understand you're talking about the Nanteus Cup. My grandmother went to visit it. I saw it as a school child. It's a very popular local object, but as a heritage object, it's being put on a much broader international plane and a much broader universal plane. The notion of somehow the sacred rather than the local. The last one I would like to look at is Fangors Lake, also a, associated with a lake legend, with a fairy legend. This one going back to the 12th century. This one appears in Walter Map, And it talks about a girl uh, coming out of the, the lake. She marries a mortal. She goes back into the lake, takes everyone with her, except one of her children. Now, the interesting thing here is in the middle of Fangors Lake is a Cranach, uh, an artificial island which we know was still in operation until the 10th century. So not only do we have folk narratives about this, and in Walter Map we have not only the lake legend story, we have um, a notion of, of, of other folklore associated with this, and from other sources like the Welsh genealogy, we can get even more information. The site is also associated with the Athank, the, the, the monster, the lake monster, the Welsh lake monster, associated with another local area, Llyn, uh, another lake in which there's a sort of underwater channel. Map tells us that there's a beautiful land underneath. So we have an awful lot of folklore, very little of which is actually referenced at the Langorse site as it is now. Uh, there are excavations, recent excavations, which produced a great deal of, of information about the Cranog. Um, and that's what it might have looked like. The material that was found, and it's quite fabulous material, a boat, um, fabrics, all sorts of things that you don't normally found, find, is housed in the Brecon Museum. But there's no real uh, attempt to link the narrative with what is there. There is a small heritage center. Now, I'm hoping this is going to be a watch this space basically, because there's such potential here. Um, the folklore is so much more grounded, so more authentically grounded than the folklore of Nanteas and Mavai, which is essentially 19th and 20th century folklore. The material here is much more extensive and much older. 
and equally uh, exciting. So looking at these three heritage sites, the way they use the narratives, the way they construct and reconstruct the narratives, I think I ought to mention at this point that I'm not suggesting that any of these narrative strains are right or wrong. Folklore is very dynamic. And while it is quite useful to be able to recognize the history and the archeology span separate from the uh, narratives that are being told, it's equally important, and I would like to end on this note, to remember that the narratives are powerful. They draw people in, they give them a better sense of the site, they provide the local community with a network to relate and continue to relate to one another, to its past and to its future, and they provide visitors with a window, sometimes a romantic window, but certainly a very interesting window into, into Welsh culture. So that concludes uh, my survey into mysterious whales.